this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And this is our fifth anniversary episode. That's right. Our or the first ending episode. of our fifth season. Why is it the fifth anniversary? We're starting our sixth season. Why can't it be our sixth We're anniversary s- episode? That's not how time works. And oh, our first okay. episode dropped exactly five years ago on October 6, 2017, to the date. And would you even have remembered this if I did not tell you? Uh, I don't know. My, my birthday is October 3rd, so... I'm usually trying to not think about anniversaries around that particular time. So here's another anniversary just to make me feel older. Well, a gazillion years have passed. Uh, Here's my my one. The one thing I can do is like is quote Ferris Bueller for you, which is life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. I feel like over the past five years, we've really proven ourselves masters of the high low. Yeah, you're saying that because you got to you were. Because you talked about Harry Styles and feel really cool about it in the Yi and Lee episode. Is that your, that's, you're just staking your flag there and like the one bit of pop culture that you've learned about in the last three I months? I was really trying to not admit that I knew that. And then you were like, by the way, you're talking about Harry Styles. It was great. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, re- I read Twitter every morning. Um, I hardly ever talk about my gaming. So we'll have to get into that on some other podcast. Uh, but we've done a lot over the last five years and I, I, I'm really proud of what we've managed to create here together and and with the help of our uh, producer and Knigendorf and Andrea Tudhope, our past producer, and all the students we've worked with at UMKC and at the University of Minnesota. We've interviewed novelists, poets, journalists, memoirists, screenwriters, playwrights. We've talked about the rise of authoritarianism and the danger to democracy domestically and abroad, the rights of trans and queer Americans, abortion rights, the Supreme Court, immigration, Russia, the military, Black Lives Matter, book bans, gun violence, higher education, housing insecurity. There's not been no shortage of things to talk about in the last five years. Yeah, I'm proud of the show too. And and I'm curious, how has having all of these conversations changed you as a writer? I don't, I, I mean, that, I don't, we'll find out. I mean, if I ever finish the book that I'm working on now, it's maybe made me a little slower as a writer. <laughs> That's been one thing. I do think that, um, it's made me a better reader. I think it's it's broadened my reading. I, I I've read writers that I was unfamiliar with, and um, and I just felt like I have been able to think about writing. 
in a broader way, not just in terms of the normal ways you think about it, in terms of diversity and, 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 and all those things which are important, but also in terms of um, thinking more broadly about what, I'm, I'm a pretty realistic writer, and thinking more broadly about what novels can be and how they can work. Um, and that also has been really helpful to me, I think. Thinking about how people are experimenting in the now in their work and the way that that experimentation can respond to some of these political issues in ways that aren't exactly the same as writing a polemic about them. Let's put it that way. Well, and in the fine tradition of this podcast, you have said it better than me and you have said it first. So that was my. Oh, answer you're gonna as well. not answer the question now. <laughs> no, I think that I think that the show has also given me courage to try a lot of new things. Yeah, that I mean, I think you know, I also my recent work has been really also realistic, and there are reasons within the context of the politics that I write about that it is realistic. But um, I'm interested in trying new things and. I think that this conversation always helps me to do that because I'm always learning something from you and who we're talking to and and from the reading. And it's hard and exciting to think about new directions for your own writing. And and I always want to be doing that. And I want the show to do that. And I'm at the beginning of a sabbatical. So I really want to do that and think about what I should be doing next. And so I'm especially thrilled that today, one of the most inventive writers I know is here to celebrate our fifth anniversary with us. Elizabeth McCracken, whose work always feels different and astonishing to me. Elizabeth is joining us to talk about her fantastic new novel, The Hero of This Book. Elizabeth McCracken is the author of seven books, including The Souvenir Museum, Bowl Away, Thunderstruck, and Other Stories, which won the 2014 Story Prize and was long listed for the National Book Award, and The Giant's House, a National Book Award finalist. Her stories have appeared in Best American Short Stories, won three Pushcart Prizes, a National Magazine Award, and an O. Henry Prize. She has served on the faculty at the Iowa Writers' Workshop and currently holds the James Mitster Chair for Fiction at the University of Texas at Austin. Elizabeth, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Tickled to be here. Well, congratulations um, on the publication of the hero of this book. I loved it. Uh, For our listeners, this novel is from the point of view of a writer walking through London and reflecting on the life and passing of her mother. How did you find your way to this book? Um, Well, I was walking shortly after the passing of my mother. Um, That's that. I mean, that's both true and not true in that um, I had I was in London and it was the year after my my mother's death and I was trying to write short stories. We my family and I were staying in a house. We had more time and space than usual in London. And I was really wrestling with some short stories that were not um, not coming together. And a, a friend of mine mentioned that she'd just written a little novel and I was so filled with bitterness and <laughs> jealousy about the idea of a little novel. And then I thought maybe I would try to write one um, because I had been walking around thinking about my mother as, as I did, though, my my early concept of the book is was quite quite a bit different. I think I was fooling myself. I think it was always going to be this book, but uh, in order to get it off the ground, I had to convince myself of certain things that turned out not to be true. I do that all the time. I almost always lie to myself about what this book's going to be and how hard it's going to be. I'd really like the two of you to help me lie to myself now as a person who's at the beginning of sabbatical and is kind of like floundering around. I'm so interested in like, what did you think the book was going to be that it isn't? Um, it was going to be a highly experimental novel with a lot of footnotes. And uh, it was going to be like part novel and part 
writing guide and the writing guide was all going to be, I hadn't ever come to a satisfactory decision about exactly what form, but it was going to be footnotes or endnotes, or maybe it was going to be marginalia. And I think that was the only way I could imagine writing a book that was fairly close to the truth um, was telling by telling myself that I was doing this like big experimental thing. It sounds like a, like, what book have I not had to trick myself into doing some way or another? And then it's also interesting to hear that you thought of writing a writing guide because, I mean, you're, um, you know, I, I was in your class um, and, I mean, so many people I went to school with were like, if we needed wisdom, we would ask Elizabeth. And yet I also had no teacher who was, who was more careful about reminding me that there were not rules um, which is also something that the, the book sort of troubles ideas of rule making and writing as well. And, and it, yeah, it's not, it's a guide, but it's not that kind of guide. So how many different versions of this book were there before the one that you found your way to? Well, as I'm about to claim that I stumbled into this form relatively early, but that's not true. I stumbled into the basic narrative of it. And originally I, I found some old notes and there were the, it was much more, the, the novel part of it was much more novel-like actually um, with characters who were much different from me or my mother. Um, Cause the mother in the book is pretty, pretty close to my mother. Um, I am even hedging there. I, it's my mother um, but, <laughs> um, to the extent that any actual person can be used as a character in fiction and and there's like there's no one-to-one correspondence obviously possible um for which we should all be grateful but i i held on to the idea that there, it was going to be half writing guide for a long time and all the stuff that is about writing in it is w- were the last things that i did the fact that the narrator because i really had vowed i would i would never write a book with a writer as the main character there are some books that I love with writers as main characters, but I have a dislike of books in which the main character just happens to be a writer. Like, it's just like, oh, I have to find a job for them. So it's going to be a writer. And so once I, I, and I couldn't get the notes right. I couldn't figure out a way to connect them to the book and have it be a satisfying reading experience. The concept was very exciting to me, but I just couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I feel like, even as I hear you just say, this character is my mother, I feel like I'm, I'm chucking out all of my questions um, in which I was going to be so careful to not, you know, very respectfully sort of be like, this is not. <laughs> I'm not in practice, Sugi, at, um, at talking about this. And originally I thought I was just going to like lie all the way through. It's not, I mean, because it does, it is a novel. I mean, I do feel that very strongly. I should say the, ma- the, the character is based on my mother. Right. And I think, you know, as someone who I never had the privilege of meeting your mom, but I've heard you and and talk about her over the years or have seen Facebook posts or, or what have you and, and sort of knew little dribs and drabs and, and sort of couldn't help but um, match that up. And and the writer's mother isn't part of the present narrative of the story, but she's very much alive in the story. And, and the book acknowledges that as part of its purpose to, to keep her... Um, to prevent her from evanescing and, and in approaching her mother, the writer also seems to be kind of approaching her own future. This is a very Sugi has become middle-aged question. Um, like, you know, like 
walking towards the future and the future is kind of receding and and the mother's death isn't linear and it's preceded by another hospitalization and this unexpected recovery. And I felt like as a person who I'm like pretty twitchy about the future these days and it seems like many people are. And, and one of my bits of twitchiness is thinking about um, myself as an elder and caring for people who are older than me in, in a post-COVID climate-changing world. And I found this handling of time in the book to be really reassuring. And I wonder if you can talk about putting time and aging on the page in this way in, in our twitchy, uncertain world. Well, I mean, in a, in a weird way, I feel like, at least for me, my, one of my I was going to say topics. One of my topics is time. It's always one of my my essential plot is time. I don't know how to write a novel um, without being really aware of a ticking clock um, and, and how time is working in it. And I knew that I, I didn't want it to be strictly chronological um, because the walk felt very important to me as a sort of organizing principle even just so, I mean, that's a piece of scaffolding that's in the book that didn't go away. The notes were a piece of scaffolding that I took off, but the walk is a way to organize, talking about somebody's entire life. I don't know how I could have done that, especially in a little novel. And it seemed important to me that it was a little novel. Um, so I was aware that I, I sort of needed a rack to hang a bunch of um, time periods off of. And also, I mean, it was, I started the book in 2019 and then I had to put it aside because um, my, um, I, it turns out I, I was supposed to meet a publishing deadline that had been given to me, which was, which was really news to me. And so I had to write a bunch of short stories for a short story collection. And then by the time I came back to the book, it was the fall of 2020. That is, I was going to probably start, go back to it in at the beginning of 2020, and then, you know, the world shut down. And by the time I went back to it, um, things were very different, but especially thinking about the deaths of elderly parents. And I, I wrote it at a time where I was thinking about my own mother and my father um, and thinking about how terrible it was that people were dying and being unable to be visited by their family. It seemed it seemed like the worst thing. Um, and so I do think when I was writing it, um, among other things, I was sort of suffused with, with gratitude that my parents both had. I mean, there are many, many ways to have bad deaths, um, but, but my parents had both had pretty good deaths. You know, they both were living at home and, um, with people they loved nearby. My father's was sudden, my mother's was not. Um, but it was, yeah. I mean, I really was grateful. The, I'm getting to the age where, and one of the things I think that I, I know that I connected with in the book is where, well, all of my friends, not me, and most of my parents are still alive, but my wife's parents, for instance, have both recently died. Uh, her mother died a while ago, and then his she lost her father during COVID. And I had like a, my friend's father passed away this week. You know, uh, the man who grew up across the street from me and was an English professor at the same university where I teach, and his son was my classmate. And and so I feel like there's also a, a time of life when you come to reckon with the loss of a particular generation, right? And wanting to preserve that in some way seems to uh, 
it's so hard to do, yet it seems so necessary. I think it's a surprise, at least for me, reaching this age to realize, oh, those people are all going to be gone. And then start think about how you're going to and why you would That's want too, to hold Whitney. on to them. We're going to be gone too. I hate to I break it to you. <laughs> I know. I'm trying not to. I'm not thinking about that part yet. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Carry on. But also by thinking about them and having to preserve them, you're not thinking about yourself, right? At least that, you know, so. Uh, and so I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, process of, of that particular generation, what your how you felt like your your parents were distinct from you as a generation, what we can learn from, you know, what you wanted to remember about them in the book the most, and then maybe read to us a little bit. That's a, that's a, that's a really interesting question. Because when I was younger, I was very obsessed with the generation above my parents. I had a, had a grandmother who lived to be 90, who I was very close to, and a, my grandfather's first cousin, so my first cousin twice removed, who I was very close to. And I was really aware as that generation died out. And I think my mother was too, to suddenly be sort of stunned to be the most senior generation around. Um, and the fact that, you know, we've all had this sort of experience, you start doing math. Um, you think like the, the classic one for me was when I realized in the 90s that that was as far from my childhood as happy days was in two opposite directions. <laughs> now, how the decades pass. Um, <laughs> but, and, and my, my mother, my father too, but had a childhood she talked about all the time. And so her childhood was very vivid when I was, when I was a kid, it felt, it felt palpable. And it is, I mean, I, I feel like it's true that I want to preserve the people who are dying, but also all the things that they contain, like at childhoods before television um, and childhoods that felt like they could touch the 19th century as well. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure I have a, a more articulate answer than that, but it does seem it does seem essential to remember to remember all the little the the little details as well as the big sweep of history. I mean, did you find that there were things that you, I guess in the process of writing, I wonder, I feel like we come to stuff that we always knew, but have never said. I'm, I'm assuming that there were certain parts of this writing of this book that were like that for you, but I don't know which ones they are, or if you could remember any of them specifically. Um, there's a whole list of things that the, the narrator talks about her mother towards the end of the book. And there were things there that I, that I just sort of sat and tried to remember. And I still, every now and then I'm walking along the street and I think, Oh, my mother used to have water pistols in her kitchen to shoot the cats off the counters. I should have gotten that in every now and then something floats back up. And it's actually, it, that's been very pleasant because it's been a way to sort of, to, to keep my mother in mind with little bits of idiosyncrasy. It seems like the the things that stuck with me most, like the memories from the book are like, yeah, I think of the book as like, it's very cerebral in certain ways, but also all of those memories are, are triggered by embodied things. Like there is like a, like there's this long section about hair and, and um, you know, there's objects that, that tilt us in a certain direction towards a certain kind of memory. And so like the, and the walk makes that possible. And I wonder if you could read for us um, a section that kind of 
um, gets at that. And then also at a little bit of the conversation that we've started having about autofiction and not. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I will say now that you mentioned that, one of the things that I had totally forgotten is there's a section about feet and shoe stores. And I had forgotten that I only remember men in, in shoe stores and the kind of shoe stores that my mother went to. And um, then I was the- totally thinking of the giant's house. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a lot of, I like feet. Um, <laughs> I want to say that apologetically, but um but it may be partially because I spend a lot of time in shoe stores with, with my mother. All right. So this is ah, maybe a fourth of the way through this pretty tiny book. And the, the, the narrator is on, has decided to go by herself onto the London eye and has been, um, is the one, there's a giant family in the capsule of the London eye. And she's the only member of the fa- the only member of the capsule who's not a member of the family. We stopped. The whole apparatus. The entire London Eye. I looked down at the platform to see a man who walked with what my mother would have called Kenny sticks. Those canes with cuffs around the forearms. Her own canes had right angle handles. Fritz handles, a cane maker would say. The man boarded. In a joltless moment, we started moving again. The jolt was internal. I realized my mother could have gone on the London Eye. She could have driven her scooter right on. I'd failed to know this, and so I had failed to take her. Was this grief? I could feel my mother's joy on the London Eye, her love of heights and good views. That streak of daredevilry and thrill-seeking. I had once taken her on a helicopter tour of downtown Miami after she'd seen somebody parasailing and had guessed aloud that she couldn't do that. My mother laughed as the helicopter wove wove through skyscrapers. I believed I would fall to the ground at any moment and thought, I've had nightmares like this. That was actual joy. The joy I could apprehend now had not occurred, was counterfeit, made of regret, and set in regret. I stared down into the next capsule at the teenagers with their green knapsacks, the cheap nylon kind with straps of black braid. Some of the kids sat on the floor and looked at their smartphones. A scruff bearded man, a teacher, gestured toward all of London. You should look. And a girl shook her head and began to sort through a pack of cards. I wasn't afraid of heights, but I was afraid of a lot of things. I am private. You are guarded. She will steal anyone's story, throw anyone to the sharks for the sake of a book. No matter where you went, the view was of other people. Each capsule on the London Eye was filled with humanity, a diorama, a panel from a comic strip, an epic painting. Focus your brain and see it. Capsule 15, The Last Supper, Jesus in the middle, the apostles arranged around him, stunned 
blaming themselves. Is it me, Lord? Is it me? I wasn't sure whether the apostles said that in the actual Bible. I only knew the line as part of a joke somebody had once told me. Capsule 21, the rape of the Sabine women. Capsule 26, a man sawing a lady in half. You might see anything. A murder, an assignation, either at two ends of the same capsule. 32 terrariums numbered 1 through 12, 14 through 33. Display cases for the seabirds of the Thames. How people lived in the past, what people get up to now. I thought, you should write a story that takes place on a Ferris wheel. This was the sort of useless note I might find on a scrap of paper in my pocket, severed from inspiration, a bad fortune I'd given myself. Mim touched the crook of my knee again, and her father leaned on the rail next to her. He wore rectangular metal framed glasses, a rectangular birthmark high up on his cheek, half magnified by a lens. They like you, he said. Children. And why not? I said heartily playing the part of the uninvited guest. Happy birthday to Bobo. Ha, he said as though correcting me, my grandmother. One of those families packing as many generations into a span of time as possible. I tried to do the math in my head. If Bobo is 80, she is 80, and this fellow is 30, then it wasn't shocking. Only the sluggish reproduction of my own family was their great grandmother, he said, gesturing to Mim and another child, the same size, same everything. Twins. I said it. Twins. Yes, twins. My mother was a twin, I told the right-hand twin, Mim, in her yellow t-shirt. Her sister was in a green t-shirt. My mother loved seeing twins out in the world, insisted on telling them, you know, I'm a twin too, even though the children must have thought it was a lie. She was an old lady all alone. The children didn't realize that one day their twinhood would be invisible because each would mostly or entirely go out in the world without the other. Ah, said the man, and they were happy, the twins of your family. I told the truth. Yes and no. Then we were at the top of the London Eye. Then we headed down. It was boring. We were in a waiting room, waiting to be returned to the world, changed because we hadn't been changed and were disappointed. I angled myself to the door to be the first to disembark. I didn't want to get caught up. I didn't want to wait. I didn't give Bobo a second look. I produced a single worthwhile short story in college my last semester for a class taught by that brilliant woman who suggested I write about people with emotions. It was about a girl and her difficult mother, a mother who didn't resemble mine except a little in the first sentence. But when I read it aloud at an event at my university, which was also my mother's place of work, she was at the back of the room. And every time I said the words, my mother, a few more people, her coworkers, my friends, turned to look at her. My mother, my flesh and blood mother, who cannot be represented in any autobiographical or fictional or autofictional prose, not even the sentence I'm currently typing. I don't write autofiction. I don't even know what it is, though it sounds like it might be written by a robot or a kiosk or a European. Did all those eyes make my mother feel self-conscious? No. Famous.
you so much. Um, I love that section. And I think it's one of the passages that made me feel like this book feels different than anything you've published before. And I think each of your books has felt that way to me. And, and that I think has sort of been a set the set a bar, a bar of interest for me, um, to think about how I can change my work as it pushes forward. And I was thinking also about an essay that your friend of mine, Yoon Lee wrote about the irreducibility of your writing in a recent essay for Harper's called Against Aboutness. And, and for those of our listeners who haven't read this, um, we'll put it in our show notes. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And there are lots of moments when the hero of this book considers categories and then rejects them. Um, the passage you just read, which anticipates that question about autofiction, but that's not the only one. There's also um, sections where we get into, you know, what did the mother character think about memoir, um, for example, or privacy. But then the movement of the writing is constantly towards what is unknowable or new. And that made the book feel really timely um, and perfect for this moment. But I was also just thinking about the, the kind of writerly challenge of building that to a conclusion. And this is admittedly like a very teleological way of thinking about it. But I mean, how do you how do you think about building that to an end when you're writing a story that in essence has no end? I'm trying I'm trying to think of how to answer that question, which is a puzzle partly because, I mean, partly because I do very little on purpose when I write. And partly because, I mean, it's really, it's, I'm very intrigued by the question. Um, but also what happened was I had shoved the idea of writing into these notes, which disappeared. And then once I took them out, I put what seemed pertinent in the book. And originally the notes were about, at least at one point when I was trying to trick myself into writing the book, I went, okay, I'm going to try to write sort of like a literary memoir in the notes. And so it talked about going to the Iowa Writers Workshop in the notes, but not in the, the body of the story. And I think I probably wouldn't have thought about those questions of category had I not been writing these notes, which were supposed to contradict the thing that was um, the body of the novel, but that once I had to get rid of them, I realized I was still really interested in that contradiction. I don't know if that answers your, your question or not. Can you, I, can you say, what do you, when you say you wanted the notes to contradict the body of the novel, what do you mean by that? I, I wanted them to think about autobiography and memoir and autofiction, whatever that is. I'm still feel very uncertain about what autofiction is. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to, to um, I guess, think about what it meant to write a novel in a way that I hadn't 
in previous times when I was writing a novel. I'm thinking of you and um, Nunley because I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, the essay that she wrote and also incredibly grateful for the things that she thinks about sort of fiction in general in that essay, which which um, I loved, but also about the Book of Goose, which is a book about a writer um, that I love and that the, the sort of the drama of novel writing. Um, and I think it's it's I'm very interested that we both ended up coincidentally writing books that could not be more different. Um, but that are somehow about what it means to write a novel, um, which is the only time I will ever compare my work to her work. That book is just so gorgeous and complicated and, um, yeah, amazing. Um, the last time, speaking of writing school and the Iowa Writers Workshop, which you mentioned last time you joined us, you were one of four writers talking about creative writing and higher education. We talked about MFAs. Um, and applying to them. And I think it's pretty likely that most of our listeners are, I don't know, I don't know about most, many of our listeners have MFAs. And all of us not only have MFAs, but teach in MFA programs. The narrator of the book teaches creative writing too and says it can't be taught. So how, what role does thinking about that part of your life and our lives play in the composition here and, and the way that you're weaving it into the novel? I'm sure I told Sugi that writing can't be taught when she was in my class. Um, it's a standard joke I make every day, uh, every first day of class I say, there's a lot of argument about whether writing can be taught. I don't think it can be. And I think it's just a funny thing to say and nobody ever thinks it's, it's funny for the <laughs> professor to say, <laughs> writing can't be taught. I don't think that, uh, I think the, the I, and I really, I love, teaching creative writing. I teach it both um, at the graduate level and the undergraduate level. And I find both tasks really meaningful in, in, in quite different ways. Um, and I, but I think in both cases, you want your students to write the things that only they can write. And I don't know what the rules for those are. I mean, I, I think there probably are rules for writing fiction, but they're individual to the writer. And as a teacher of creative writing, I feel like the best that I can do is uh, try to help my students think interestingly. I probably said something similar to that um, the last time I was on. Uh, but I think, I think that's, that's the aim is to get people to think interesting thoughts, um, to not feel constrained. Um, I think one of the reasons that, uh, that rules are comforting and I often have students begging me for some rules um, to which I say don't use gift as a verb um, even though that horse is so far out of the barn it's not I still sometimes write no in the margins but now people have started to say it aloud and you can't really when they say gift somebody gifted me this book I can't actually go no <laughs> um, but I, I I think rules are comforting um, because they are constraint so you feel sort of you feel sort of safe they're they're a car seat um but i'm not sure that that all right this is a really bad metaphor that's brewing in my head writing in a car seat is not going to teach you how to drive though that, <laughs> you know. i like that metaphor <laughs> there you go i feel like i mean i think you you did give us like um 
I mean, I, I know people who still have, you know, their notes from your classes that I was in with them where they, you know, we, we would all write down these like Elizabeth said something that we think we can take back and, and use as a rule, like our, we can use this to, these are the scissors with which we will trim our garden carefully and make sure that it falls in these tidy lines. And, and then of course we would end up with jungles anyway, and which you would support us. Um, and yeah, I think that, I don't know, like sort of the permission to be strange, um, was one of the the things that I felt so intensely. And so I'm, I'm going to seamlessly move this into a question about Texas because I've mentioned strangeness and, and you do, you live in Texas and we've done several episodes of this show, um, about Texas, um, which I guess we've now started to refer to ours as our WTF Texas series of episodes. And, um, Yeun wrote in her essay, the world strange in the first place is often made stranger by our minds. And, and you live in Texas. And I just am wondering what effect, like you've now been living in Texas for a while. And I wonder how that has affected your view of the world and your view of fiction. And also why set the book in London instead of Texas? That's interesting to me that like the now of the novel you chose to put in a country where you don't live. I, I, that's a sort of unrelated, but somewhat related question. If you have a chance to answer that one too. Because I'd rather be in London than Texas. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> I don't now know. We have it. Um, you know, I was about to say I live in Texas, but I don't want to die here. Um, and uh, <laughs> But it seems some days... Uh, Texas wants the people who live in it to be dead. Oh, that's very grim. There are lots of things I like about Texas, I should say, although I don't want to die here. Um, and it is a very strange place. Um, made strange, you know, I live in Austin, which is the place that people go, oh, that's the good part of Texas. Though um, at this point, you know, most of the cities are, are large, diverse, and skew democratic um i think uh in 2016 hillary clinton won every city and you know there are tons of giant cities in texas except for maybe fort worth um but it is also a strange place in which you know my students can be armed in the classroom now those guns have to be hidden from view which is and this is what Texas will do to you. Like, I'm really grateful that the guns have to be hidden from view because I, it's a sort of a, I don't know, a Schrodinger's pistol. Like if I can't see them, I can pretend they're not there. But if they had, op so they have concealed car carry on uh, the UT campus. Um, if it was open carry, I, you know, make me, make me more nervous. Um, and, it, you know, it's a, uh, talk to to some of my friends about I mean, why does Texas feel more oppressive these days and I oh yes because Texas is actually working to oppress people specifically um specifically women um it's a uh, it's um depressing to be um to be in a place that that has is so you know oppressive when it comes to reproductive health there's great music. Oh. Willie Nelson is here. That's wonderful. Well, I love it is from Texas. That is amazing. The food is great. And I have a lot of dear friends. I mean, there are things to, to, to love about Texas, but it feels it feels uh, difficult to live in a state which currently has 
the second most loathsome governor in the country. Oh, who's your number one? Is it DeSantis? Ron DeSantis. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's worse. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel um, like, I mean, do you feel like Texas has changed your writing? Um, yeah, I think it has. Um, and partly that's because, and this is actually something I really love about Texans. I really, I like Texans, I should say. It's the, it's the, um, the government that feels, that can feel terrible here. Um, because Texans are, as a group, funny and polite, uh, which is, you know, they're both. I'm from Boston. We're one of those things. And it's not polite. But bec- Texans are are very interested in where they're from. And there's a real sort of sense of, um, of identity, of location, which was new to me. I didn't have that growing up in Massachusetts. We had no particular state pride. I mean tons of snobbery don't get me wrong but not necessarily attached to the shape of the state that we were in which is i should someday count how many times i see the shape of texas when i go about my day um but that has i think that's made me interested in location in a way that it was that i wasn't beforehand that i sort of thought of geographic location as something i needed to make up my mind about but didn't really write about and one of the reasons that um the book is in London and not set in Texas is because I, there was something sort of comforting to me about thinking about a map that um, the, the narrator is, is um, following and something that's sort of comprehensible because um, Texas is not comprehensible. And London, I'm not saying that London is comprehensible, um, but it felt like a, a useful organizing principle in a way. I want to just, we have to wrap up, but I wanted to ask you one question about that. You mentioned earlier in the interview that you needed a scaffolding to hang, right, the memories of your mother on. And that's obviously these perambulations through London. Um, And when we're talking about rules, uh, I perhaps make more than I should. Um, And one of the things that I often tell myself and then tell my students is that you have to be careful to make sure that your flashbacks are not more interesting than you're now. And um, this is, a, this is a, a thing that I feel at the now is as interesting as the flashbacks here, but I'm wondering how you did it. I've thought a lot about that. Like, well, how is she pulling this off? Because there's not actual traditional fictional plot, right? Um, there, is, there is the mind of the narrator thinking about the Tate or thinking about ballpoint pens or thinking about whatever it is that the mind of the narrator is doing. And in that sense, it reminds me of essay writing where there's an arc of discovery in the now. It doesn't have to be plot. Like I bought this thing, I stole, I robbed this bank and then this thing happened, right? That it, the plot is is the way that the author is coming to understand things. I wondered if that resonates with you, if that seems like an accurate description or if you thought about like, a, how do I make sure that this now is functioning, you know, and, and, and as interesting as the, as the memories that I'm writing about. No, it does re- resonate with me. It makes me think of two things. One of which is, I think, Sugi asked me about sort of the way time is set up, and I think I feel in a um, as a writer is that you do have to be equally interested in every time frame, and that they actually aren't different just because they're not chronological. Um, they are they're equal, um, and that if I, th- it's funny to to hear the term flashback because certainly they are but I didn't think about them as flashbacks as 
I was writing. And I don't necessarily want to suggest that the narrator is thinking about about exactly what she goes back to, just that there are sort of two different um, uh, timeframes. I also think that uh, one of the most influential books of my graduate experience, one of the books that was handed around and blew my mind is Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine, which is the plot of which is a guy, I feel I should know whether he's going up or down the escalator, I cannot remember, but a guy is going either up or down an escalator. Um, and it's every single thought that he has. It actually is full of footnotes. It might have been the first um, heavily footnoted novel I ever read. Um, and I just loved it, that idea that, in fact, plot can be entirely interior as long as you make it interesting. As, lo- and as long as you make it spe- specific, not sort of ineffable longing or, you know, those, that's the sort of interior world that is um, teachers of creative writing. We're all very familiar with people writing about, you know, st- stomach sinking and, and, and sadness. Um, but Baker is so, so specific and funny and, and smart. Well, Elizabeth, we so appreciate your joining us for this conversation. And uh, listeners, the hero of this book is out this week. And we recommend you race to your bookstore if you did not pre-order this book, um, race to the bookstore and get it because it's so, so good. And, and Elizabeth, thank you so much. You're so welcome. It was a delight. Sorry to be a bummer about Texas. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel, and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!